This is Ron Whitlock reports coming to you from the Rio Grande Valley Sugar Growers Incorporated County Sugar House. We have on the phone the chairman of the board, Tudor Ullhorn. Tudor, explain what exactly the rationale is behind the closure and why did it have to happen? We uh, rely on a water treaty with Mexico uh, in the Rio Grande Valley for our basically 100% of our municipal uh, and uh, irrigation water uh, coming from the Rio Grande. And the past two years, uh, Mexico has failed to meet its delivery expectations from the Rio Conchos into the Rio Grande, despite having adequate water to do so. And that's put all of Valley Agriculture in a real bind but it especially puts the sugar mill in a real bind because without irrigation water, uh, our growers have had to reduce acreage. So in 22-23, we had about 32,000 acres of sugarcane growing, and with that amount of sugarcane, we can, we can make it work. Then in 23-24, which is the crop we just finished in, finished harvesting, our acreage dropped by about uh, 14,000 acres down to 18,000 acres. Actually, the acres that we were able to harvest was only around 16,000 something, and we felt like with good prices that we have right now, we could we could make some money at that 16,000 uh, acres of cane to harvest based on sugar expectations, but the dry weather that we've had and, the, and not having enough irrigation water for a lot of this cane, our sugar per ton expectations were not met this year. And so when we looked at that situation with no water coming, and by February the 8th, our growers had plowed out acres to where now they, there was only 10,000 acres in the ground left, and I had attended a February 8th meeting in Mercedes with the IBWC where they made a presentation about the current situation and uh, all their operations along the Rio Grande. It became evident that Mexico was not going to sign the new minute to the treaty that everyone had been expecting. and. Uh, we've been told to expect that in December of 23, and that never happened and still hasn't happened. But even if they sign a new minute, that's not going to get us enough water soon enough such that the 10,000 acres that we had left, there was no way to make the mill economically viable, and we can't skip a year uh, because of the capital-intensive nature of, of, of operating a sugar mill. So we were really, the decision was made for us with no water from Mexico for two years and no prospect for getting any this year. We just, liquidation and was the only way, and uh, uh, an orderly liquidation of the business was the only way to do it. You know, we're, this is not a liquidity crisis. We have plenty of cash. We're current on all our loans and with all our vendors. And uh, as of January 31st, we had $35 million in cash and cash equivalents. So it's not a liquidity situation. It's just a recognition of without water, we're not viable.
So at this point, you're saying you're talking about the fact that you're going to be dissolving and tearing down the mill at this point in time. So what I understand? Yes, it'll probably take us uh, at least uh, through December 31st to you know have an orderly liquidation of everything. Uh, we've got to uh, you know work on a lot of different things. There's some large components in a sugar mill, like a turbine generator, steam gener uh, it's powered by steam and we have lots of other specialized sugar equipment that, you know, cost three or four million dollars a piece of equipment that because of the current price of sugar, there are a lot of sugar operations around the world that are expanding. So those components are very valuable. And so we'll, we'll be in the process of, you know, uh, identifying those pieces and putting together packages and trying to see, you know, what we can sell. These are, you know, very large industrial components that have a long lead time. So, for example, if you told somebody that they needed a, a turbine generator for a sugar mill that could generate enough electricity like we were to run the entire plant, once we got gulping, we were basically operating off the grid with this steam gen uh, turbine. Um, the lead time for that is probably three years before you could get one manufactured and installed, and we have one that you know somebody could take immediately and install in their plant. So we're hopeful that that's, that that process will take you know let's say the next. Um, uh, ten months, and the potential prospect buyer number one would be in Mexico, which is nearby. Uh, there, buyers for those pieces of equipment could be in Mexico or Central America. They could also be in Louisiana or Florida uh, that also have you know sugar mill operations in both of those states. And I think we've already had an inquiry from a, a mill in Louisiana about a particular piece of equipment. So. News like this travels fast through the industry, and it's a small, small industry in the U.S. And um, so we're hopeful that that will happen. Um, we wanted to, we wanted to meet this thing head on. It's it, you don't want to drag this out and continue to burn money while you're making a decision. And so uh, you know, we our first priority is to do what's right by our employees and uh, take care of them as best we can, and then the growers and our creditors and everyone else. So it's a it's a complex process, and we hope to get through most of it within, like I said, the next eight to ten months. So the ash that we see from sugarcane burnoff that we see sometimes even going as far into the state as Austin at the capital, that ash is coming out of Mexico, Central America, or South America. Well, I don't know about ash, but it would uh, ash wouldn't travel that far, I don't think. But there, you know, there's particulate or smoke down in the valley. Um, you know, the smoke that we get or the haze that we get is from you know crop stubble burning of all kinds of crops in Mexico and Central America. Um, that's why sometimes the sky doesn't look as blue as we think it should look as we've either got smoke from Mexico or Central America or 
Saharan dust coming across from Africa uh, that gets into the atmosphere. Uh, but um, as far as uh, ash going to Austin, I think I disagree with you on that. But there, but there's definitely, you know, uh, we have hazy days down here because of just crop stubble burning behind corn or whatever in Mexico. The employee side, you said, uh, concerns by the board going forward. How many employees are going to lose their job? Uh, our seasonal employees, and those are the ones that work during the harvesting and grinding season, that's about uh, 325 to 350 employees. And they they work as a seasonal employee. They they sign on and they either are a tractor driver or, or a truck driver or uh, a harvester operator, those types of jobs. And every year, you know, we hire those people in October and at the end of the season, uh, you know, they're let go. So that's the normal process. So that's that let's say let's call that three hundred and fifty people. And then we have another hundred and fifty people that are full time employees. And those uh the the seasonal people were let go at the end of the grinding season, you know, per normal. Uh, but the other hundred and fifty people we're going to, uh, uh, we've notified them, and they'll be uh, uh, working for another um, little over two months to allow them time to, you know, try to find other employment or um, do what they need to do. Uh, and we're working with, to try to get them whatever assistance they might need. Um, with their, you know, continuing their health care through COBRA or whatever it happens to be so that they, they're well-informed. And uh, obviously the uh, Texas Employment Commission, uh, Texas Workforce Commission is also aware of this and, you know, they'll be eligible for unemployment for whatever the term is for that. Now, these employees predominantly are residents of... Santa Rosa, Edge Couch, also, Mavia. A lot of them are, yes. I mean, obviously, the impact to the surrounding communities will will be the biggest, Santa Rosa, Edge Couch, Mavia. But we've got, you know, employees basically from all over the valley. They're, these are, um, you know, trained people that are specialized in their jobs, and so um, uh, they basically come from all over. We've got employees from Raymondville, from Harlingen, McAllen, Edinburgh, from all over. And the total amount of that income into the Valley economy was how much for all those employees on an annualized basis? The actual employee number I don't know, but uh, when we had thirty to 35,000 acres, our budget was around $100 million a year for everything. So it's a it's a very significant impact and it's just you know a sad day for all of us uh, we have worked with uh, for the past two years intensively and, and we're grateful for the work of our uh, uh, US representatives uh, Monica de la Cruz and Vicente Gonzalez for what they have tried to help us with we've worked with TCEQ because once 
the International Boundary and Water Commission determines how much water's in the reservoirs and how much can be allocated. They turn it over to the TCEQ, and then the TCEQ makes the allocations to all of us down here in the valley, all the irrigation districts and the communities and other water right holders down here. So um, I met with the State Department in uh, April of 23 with Sean Brashear, and we've met with the State Department numerous times to impress upon them how critical, you know, Mexico's adherence uh, to the terms of the treaty is. And uh, in 2022, uh, July of 2022, we were all Mexico uh, in the Conchos Valley and Texas were all in about the same situation. We were very short on water. We were down into the 20% range uh, in the reservoirs, uh, on the international reservoirs, and they were down to about 20% on their 11 interior reservoirs, uh, eight of which have been constructed since the treaty was signed in 1944. Uh, when a tropical depression came through and grazed the valley on the Mexico side, and it went up into... In August, the second or the first or second week of August 2022, and went up into that Conchos River basin, and they picked up 2.3 million acre feet of water into their reservoirs. So they they went from 20 percent of their capacity to 70 percent of their capacity in the interior reservoirs in Mexico, and we went from about uh, 20. 2% to about 34% in the international reservoirs because they can't catch everything that falls in there. And what they can't catch is considered, the term is wild water. That's the water that reaches the Conchos River and eventually flows into the Rio Grande near Presidio, Texas. Um, that's, that's, that's our... That's our watershed for this area is in the Conchos Basin. So in the treaty, the 1944 treaty, the Colorado River and the lower Rio Grande are parts of that treaty. And the water we deliver to Mexico from the Colorado River, the source of that water is from the United States. It's a, you know, snow melt in the mountains of Colorado. So we provide water to Mexico on the Colorado and in turn, the other part of the treaty is Mexico is to supply uh, South Texas and the other uh, water users on the lower Rio Grande water from the Conchos, which is in Mexico. And it's it's the big river. It's the big hoss that provides us the water. We're supposed to get a third of the flows that come in at, along that river, uh, that come in at Presidio, and the our one-third is not to be less than an average of 350,000 acre feet per year over a five-year cycle. So 1.5 million, one, uh, 1.75 million acre feet over this five-year cycle. We're currently in the fourth year of the cycle that began on October 25th, 2020. And Mexico has delivered just a, so we're in the fourth year and Mexico's only delivered about one year's worth of water, slightly over that, I think it's 370 something thousand acre feet. One year would be 350,000 acre feet. 
So that's despite the, them picking up 2.3 million acre feet of that water that they captured in their reservoirs. Not a single drop was released to fulfill their obligation to Texas and the United States. We just got Meanwhile, what they couldn't catch. So they have the water in their reservoirs today, and they could open the gates today and provide the water today, and they're refusing to do that? They they had the water. That was in, you know, 2022. So they used a bunch of that water in the spring of 23. You know, they know if they don't use it, there's more pressure on them to, uh, you know, deliver water to the U.S., so... They've greatly expanded their irrigated acreage in Chihuahua since the treaty was signed. They've added eight additional dams in that time period. And so they're able to capture much more of that water that used to flow freely into the Conchos and into, because the obligation of Chihuahua and Mexico to the United States is 350,000 acre feet per year on average. That's our one-third. That means two-thirds should be going to Tamaulipas. So the actual, that would be, their two-thirds would be 700,000 acre feet. So what Chihuahua is obligated to deliver annually as an average is not 350,000 acre feet. It's a million fifty thousand acre feet. And so Tamaulipas suffers along with us. But, um, you know, they get twice as much water into their account as we do. We get 100% of the water that flows into the Rio Grande from the tributaries on our side, which is primarily the uh, Pecos River and the Devil's River. And because of the drought in Texas, those, those rivers are, are, are not contributing it as much. But... Uh, uh, the shortage of water from the Conchos affects not only us, but also the growers across from the Rio Grande Valley in Tamaulipas. And uh, on January the 22nd, uh, the Mexican section of the of the uh, Rio Grande started releasing about 225,000 acre feet from Amistad to Falcon which is going to take about a month to move that much water. And we speculate that they're moving that water, and this is speculation on my part, but I speculate they're moving that water so that they can use it uh, before they sign any minute that would require them to give a portion of it to the United States. Uh, supposedly, the latest intel on when the minute is going to be signed. The latest promise from Mexico is that that new minute number 330 would be signed in the next two weeks, which will be too late for us, but uh, there might be, it might do some good for the other irrigated cropland in the valley, cotton, corn, sorghum, vegetables, those kinds of things, citrus. So while the uh, Mexican government is not providing the water that it owes the United States through the IBWC, the United States is providing the amount of water it's supposed to provide to Mexico out of the Colorado, et cetera. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, the Mexico, um, the, the Colorado River, rather, that water is allocated annually 
because the 1944 treaty was negotiated. They speculated that the snowpack in Colorado was more reliable than the rainfall in the Conchos Valley in Chihuahua and Mexico. So, um, yes, the way we treat Mexico on the Colorado River is if there's, because of a shortage of water, if there's a 15% deficit in the amount of water from the 1.5 million acre feet that, that uh, we, that's going to be delivered to Mexico, if there's a deficit on the U.S. side, then we share that deficit with Mexico. We, we cut their allocation by 15%, just like we cut our own people by 15%. That's not the way Mexico treats Texas on the, on the other, on the Rio Conchos and the other part of the Rio Grande side of that treaty. Um, so I guess my my question is, if Mexico is not holding up to its end of the agreement in provision of water under the treaty, then why would our White House and our State Department continue to provide water on our part of the treaty? Well, I wish I knew the answer to that question. I've I've met with the IBWC on several occasions, and uh, excuse me, the State Department. The State Department uh, rejects any attempt to tie the Colorado and the Rio Grande together, even though it's the same treaty. They 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 don't want to do that. And the way they've interpreted the treaty for the last 30 years gives Mexico every benefit of the doubt that is possible, the benefit of the interpretation. So right now... The way the State Department interprets the treaty, even though Mexico owes us, we're in year four, and they owe us over 700,000 acre feet of water that, you know, on average should have been delivered. Um, the, the State Department says they're not in technical violation until the last day of the five-year cycle, basically. Uh, a new cycle starts every time Amistad and Falcon reach conservation level. And the last time they were at conservation level, full, let's say, was October 25th, 2020. So that's what started this current cycle. Um, and uh, it's difficult to understand why they would interpret the treaty that way because Mexico can accumulate such a large debt by doing that, and that's what's happening right now, that at some point, even if Mexico, if, if you get to the point where, uh, because the requirement for our one-third to be 350,000 acre-feet, you've got to remember they've got to let Tamaulipas' water flow, too. So, again, that annual requirement is a million and fifty thousand acre feet coming out of Mexico to to satisfy the treaty obligations, and at some point they don't have enough capacity. Even if they could, even if their reservoirs had no dead storage and it was like a bathtub and you could pull the plug on them and drain every bit of water they had in storage in on the, their 11 dams in the interior of Mexico, most of which are on the Conchos, they can't pay it back. So the way we interpret the treaty is no one in 1944 ever expected to allow Mexico to accumulate such a huge debt that there was no way they could pay it back by the end of the fifth year.
and that's that's the way the State Department interprets the treaty, that there's no technical violation until we get to the end of that fifth year and Mexico is deficient in their water deliveries. And so... My my last observation would be Ag Chairman Lee Hill Tigadana Garza is turning over in his grave. That's true. Uh, And... um, I'm old enough to uh, have worked with Kika, and one of the first things I ever did was testify in front of the House Ag Committee in Washington when he was chairman, and certainly uh, we miss him. Uh, the State Department, uh, I've, I've, been, I've met with the State Department multiple times over the last 30 years, and it really doesn't matter whether it's a Republican administration that's in office or a Democratic administration that's in office. The State Department is sort of uh, self-sustaining in that, you know, there's not a lot of turnover there, and the way they interpret the treaty doesn't change. And so um, there's, there always seems to be something more important than the citizens of South Texas with regard to that treaty with Mexico. You know, right now we've got the immigrant, immigrant crisis, we've got the cartel situation, lots of other high-level uh, issues that the United States is dealing with Mexico on, and um, we always seem to fall to the bottom of that list. And I, I would like to point out that the uh, um, IBWC Commissioner, Dr. Maria Elena Hiner, has been the most communicative, the most supportive, and the biggest advocate that South Texas has ever had in my in, in my history with them at the IBWC. She's been fantastic in fighting for water for us, but she can only do, you know, what she can do without the proper support for the State Department. Uh, they're... they're their ultimate bosses are the United States State Department. So without pressure from them on Mexico, she's pretty limited. But she's been great. 